Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you're such a big God that is infinitely bigger than any trial or circumstance that we face or are going through, that you have promised to be with us and never leave us, to fight our battles for us, that you've promised to provide everything that we need and that you've offered us the opportunity to just rest in you and be willing vessels for you to work through if we could just get out of your way. Thank you that we know how the story ends, that you didn't keep that secret from us either. You told us about what our eternal future is going to look like. You told us that what the victory, the final victory is going to look like. You secured that victory through the death of your son as he died in the place of sinners and the payment on behalf of all of the guilty so that those that would put their trust in you could know that they're in your forever family and they'll, that you'll never let them go, not on the basis of what they've done for you, but on the basis of their simple faith alone in the provision of your sacrifice alone, your death, burial, and resurrection on their behalf. Thank you that we have that truth so that we know we're not wondering what each day will bring, uh, but we know that you are the one who is sovereign, that you plan and a purpose for our lives that you'll direct and undertake to make account in light of eternity if we'll just put our trust in you. Thank you for those promises. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to change these batteries because now this one's cutting out, but we'll, I guess, be praying about these uh, headsets. All right, we'll see if that makes a difference. It's fun to hear those young people singing, isn't it? I think they're singing. I mean, they could be wrestling on the floor for all I know. All right, well, the title of tonight's sermon is Passing the Baton. Passing the Baton. We're going to be looking at the 31st chapter of Deuteronomy tonight. When you think about that phrase, passing the baton, you can't help but think about its most common application in the sporting world. And in the sporting world, the most common application of passing the baton is running races, specifically relay races, where one runner would run a certain segment of the combined team event, and then they would pass the baton off to the next runner who would take it in stride in an ideal world, take it in stride without there being any hiccups, without the baton hitting the ground, without there being any slowing of the pace at all, and they just continue moving that baton in the same direction that their other teammates had been running. And so you think about that as it relates to the Word of God, and what an appropriate analogy when it comes to things of faith, because the Bible, in various passages in the New Testament, describes the Christian's life as running a race. And you can think of some of them, but the most Probably popular ones are the one that maybe comes to your mind first is the Hebrew author. Now the Hebrew author in chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, at least the first part of chapter 2, says this. It says, therefore we also, now he's talking about this walk of faith or this race of faith if you want to make the comparison to what he's going to use by way of illustration in chapter 12. He's just talked about this witness in chapter 11 of these different men and women that weren't spectacular in and of themselves. There wasn't anything special about them. They weren't flawless. In fact, almost all of them had giant train wrecks in their life of some kind that were even recorded on the pages of Scripture. But yet, as a whole, by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone, allowing Him to work in their lives, allowing God, I should say, to work in their lives, they had lives that could be characterized or described as being lives lived by faith. They had an example or a testimony that was evident through their lives, the things they said, the things they did, so that others would describe them as men and women of faith. And they're held up as an example in chapter 11 of Hebrews. And then as you move on to the 12th chapter of Hebrews, the Hebrew author says, therefore we also. So in alignment with those that have gone before us, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, in light of what he just said about their witness, let us now, let's make an application to ourselves, let us lay aside every weight. Now note there's a 
three things here, or two things here. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us or ensnares us. So we have two types of things that can sidetrack us. We have weights and we have sins. And so you think about the things that are ensnaring you, besetting you, distracting you, keeping you from running the race the way God intended for you to run it. It could be either one of those things, something that's overtly sinful, but it could just be a weight too, a weight that's not overtly sinful, but it's distracting you from the mission. It's distracting you from the primary objective, which is to run the race that's been set in front of you. So we need to lay aside, he says, the weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and what do we need to do instead? Instead of being beset or ensnared by these things that are holding us back from accomplishing our purpose, we need to let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Meaning, do you have a purpose? Yeah, you do. Does God have a plan for your life? Yes. Does he have something that he's hoping to accomplish through you as a vessel or a channel through which he can work if you'll just get out of his way? If you'll be a yielded instrument, if you'll say, here am I, send me. If you'll stop resisting, you'll stop fighting, you'll stop preventing what he's trying to do in and through you in your life, yeah, he has a plan for you. And the plan is to run the race that's set before you. Now, how is that going to be possible? By looking at yourself, by looking in the mirror, by looking at others, by looking at your circumstances, by looking at your trials, by looking at the world? No, by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. As we look at him, that puts our focus on him. As our focus is on him, then our Our mind is on him. As our mind is on him, we have naturally then an attitude of dependence on him to do in and through us or do for us what we could never do for ourselves. While we have that perspective, his spirit is free to then make changes in us, to transform us into the image of the Son of God, to work work out of us what he has worked in us, all through his strength, all through his grace, all to his glory. But that's the formula. That's, I hate to even use that word because it sounds mechanical, but that's how the Bible lays out the Christian success. Now when you talk about running a race or even passages about that, the Apostle Paul uses that language too. So you have the Hebrew author, but you have the Apostle Paul using that language as he's about to die or end his life in 2 Timothy 4.7. Most of you are familiar with this too, but he says what? I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. This race that has been set in front of us, meaning there was an objective, there was a purpose. He said, I, I forget the things that are behind and I keep pushing forward toward the prize of the high calling, toward the mark, toward, toward that objective. He doesn't say, I've ever arrived at the objective, but he says, one day my race will come to an end and I've finished the race then. But he says, I kept the faith. And he said, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day And not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. There's a prize to be gained at the end of a race. Now, one of the prizes is just to finish the race. But another is to hear, well done, a good and faithful servant. One of them is to obtain the the trophy or obtain the prize. You know, lots of people run, but they, they don't obtain the prize. He talks about in a different passage. The idea is that there are rewards that will be given to those that have lived their lives in a way where they allowed God to work and produce through them, through his strength, all to his glory, the objective or the plan or the purpose that he had for them. Now the interesting thing about it is it's all a testimony to God's grace. It's all God. Your part in it, the thing that's being celebrated is your willingness to see that you have nothing to offer, to see that without me you can do nothing, but to also have seen by God's grace that with God there's nothing that's impossible and that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yet not I, but Christ who liveth in me. So your simple realization of that fact, that with God working in and through you there's nothing that's impossible, he's going to actually reward you for that? It's amazing grace how sweet the sound has saved a wretch like me and continues to provide victory over the power of sin in my life and give me a purpose for living. What a great God that he provides for every step of the way and one day he's going to finalize that by giving me a glorified body and freeing me from the very presence of sin. And it's all going to be by his grace. It's all going to be by faith. It's all going to be for his glory. And you think, what a simple plan. (laughs) 
But the plan only works if we can get ourselves out of the way and see that it's God that's working in us. It's God that's making that possible. So then if you've competed in a race, though, you talk about this language of running a race. If you've competed in races, you know that no race is without its ups and downs. So as I'm thinking about passing the baton, you have to build up to that. First, you have to see that life or the journey of the Christian life, is a, it, it is a race. It's described that way by the Word of God. And it has ups and downs associated with it. There are times that you're doing really great and there's other times that you are pushing through adversity or barely surviving. There's times when you're running a race that you're flying high and there's other times that you're barely moving forward at all. In fact, there's been times, well, I've been racing mountain bikes where I couldn't even pedal the bike anymore and I've just been walking the bike up a certain hill because my legs were cramping and twitching and what have you and I couldn't even pedal anymore. There's been times where I had somebody bang into me and send me flying over my handlebars where I was laying concussed on the ground. There have been times where it wasn't all pleasant, where I was really suffering. But there's been other times where I've been a part of a lead pack and flying down the trail, working hand-in-hand with another group of racers, riding in a pace line where different people are taking their turn, pulling at the front of that, the front of that pack. And as somebody else takes their turn up in the front, they're breaking the wind for you. They're creating a, an advantage for you because you're being now sucked along the trail behind this pack of people and you're getting to rest a little bit as you still are part of this pack of riders that is flying down the trail. And then it comes your tar- turn. People take different turns to come to the lead of that pack and to work a little harder than everybody else for a minute and everyone else falls into line behind them. And it's, it can be beautiful at times, but it's not always beautiful. You think of a positive time where the race was being run the way that God wanted it to be run, and you see Paul using that language in Second Thessalonians 1, 3 through 4. He's talking to a church full of people, and obviously for our application here tonight, we're not necessarily focused on any one individual, but we're all here together corporately as a local church. Well, Paul is writing to a local church, and he's saying, you're running the race well. You're letting the Lord work through you corporately in a way that's bringing him glory. And he uses this language. He says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren. That's plural there. As it is fitting. Now, why is he giving thanks for this particular local church or this group of believers? Because they're running the race the way that God intends. He says, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. You're saying a sign of a healthy church is that love is abounding toward one another within that local assembly? Yeah, that's the sign of a healthy church. As people think not only of their own affairs, but they think of the affairs of others, they, they have this idea of ministering to one another in love. I've been thinking about the local church and I've been thinking about just even metaphors or examples or way you could explain or talk about the local church. And this isn't perfect. Come, if you've got some improvement on it, come talk to me about it afterward. But I keep thinking about like a train that is moving down a particular set of tracks. But the train, it's not, the, it's not really a glamorous train. It's kind of had a bunch of soot get on it from the engine up front, from the coal burning in the furnace up in the engine. And you know, the train has some faded paint and it has a lot of squeaks and has a bunch of uh, different parts on the train that are making noises as it kind of rattles down the track. But on one side of the train is sort of one of the mission statements, if you will, of what the train's all about. And on one side of the train, and hopefully this is our train here as a local church, it says, striving together for the furtherance of the gospel. I hope that's what it says. And I thought, well, what would the other side of the train say? And I think the other side should say, ministering to one another in love. So now we've got this rattling train. It's not perfect. It's got a bunch of flaws. It makes a bunch of noise. And in fact, it's not all that pretty to look at. But it's still moving down the track, and it's got a mission striving together for the furtherance of the gospel and ministering to one another in love. And you think about two of the primary functions of a local church, and those are them. So then the question becomes, you have an option of either getting on that train and acknowledging that it's imperfect, but it's imperfectly perfect because it's a church made up of sinners. It's a church made up of people who are flawed and broken, but yet it's still moving down the track and it's still fulfilling its mission. The other option, of course, is to stand on the sideline and to criticize and nitpick about all of the flaws and all of the squeaks and to point out to other people how the train isn't perfect. But I'll tell you what, there's only one that's going to bring you any happiness 
And only one that's going to bring God any glory. And it isn't the latter. It's not standing on the sideline and criticizing and complaining about how the train could be better. It's about getting on board and being a part of a train that's moving in a certain direction that is fulfilling God's objective for the local church. And there's all kinds of things you can get worked up about. There's all kinds of things that you could focus on or point to or even say this could be improved. And some of the times as you're on the train, you might actually, as a group that's on this train, you might address some of those things. It's not wrong to ever notice that there's things that could be better, but you're still on the train instead of just being someone on the sideline that's just c- criticizing and complaining the tra- about the train. And that's not perfect, but I'm just thinking about races that are, are difficult at times. There's ups and downs at times, but you don't have to focus on that. We can, as we're going about that race and we come into a period of difficulty or some spot that's kind of hard or we get banged up or bruised up a little bit, we can still just reorient our eyes to the one who can give us strength, the one who can refocus our perspective, the one who can reorient our direction so that we are moving in the right path as it comes to God's objective for our local church. So here's another example of where the track, where the race wasn't going that well for a local church. Paul, he uses this language of racing without really necessarily always talking about it. He's talking about this corporate race that a church could have. Now, he had this praise for this high flying, not through any strength of their own, but trusting the Lord. Remember, he said, we give thanks for your faith that's growing exceedingly and your love for everyone that came from what? From your faith. Now he talks to the Galatians though and in chapter 5 verse 7 he says you were, you were, meaning past tense, you were running well. You had been running well but he says, he's asking a question here, who hindered you from obeying the truth? So now he's speaking to a corporate body that instead of running the race in a way that would please the Lord, in a way that could be celebrated, in fact needs some correction. And he's saying, you were running well, but what's changed? What has happened that you're no longer doing that? And so you think about that. Part of, part of racing is to acknowledge that there are some ups and downs. It's not to wallow in the, down po- the, the low points. It's to trust the Lord in the low points. It's to reorient your thinking. It's to, it's to acknowledge that this hasn't been great. It's to say, Lord, now put us in a direction that would bring you glory, that would be befitting of the gospel message that's been entrusted to us, that would fulfill the mission that you've put in front of us. So to continue with that theme of racing or running in a race or a relay race, race, the scripture consistently emphasizes the importance of passing the baton, passing truth on to the next generation. And so that was kind of a long-winded introduction here about passing the baton, but I thought it was warranted to talk about some of these principles or illustrations that the Bible uses of running a race. So you have this race individually, you have this race corporately, it's not all roses, there's ups and downs, but a big part of racing as a team being a part of a body of believers, is that there's going to be the passing of the baton or the passing of the truth. And specifically the passing of the truth, not just to one another, but the passing of the baton to the next generation. And that that baton should pass regardless of the ups and downs that are going on throughout time or over the course of time. So turn, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now I told you we're going to be in Deuteronomy 31. Perhaps we'll get there tonight. But we're, I just want to remind you of this sense of passing the baton when you're running a race that there'd be this objective in running the race to pass that truth on, pass that baton of truth on to the next generation. And you can find this principle throughout the word of God. But I just want to remind you of at least three places we've already seen in Deuteronomy that talk about this. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses not, verse 9 and then 10. And these should be in chronological order so we can just work our way through up to where we're at presently. Now verse 9 says, Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. See the personal nature of a walk of faith that then can have an impact on others in your life. Lest you forget the things your eyes have seen lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And what's the instruction that follows? And teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. So some of you think, well, my children are grown. That responsibility has passed on. Well, you might have grandchildren now. 
You might have people who are in your lives that are like children or like grandchildren. Verse 10, especially though, concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, Mount Sinai, when the Lord said to me, gather the people to me and I will let them hear my words that they may learn, now first on an individual basis, learn to fear me, have godly respect and awe for me all the days they live on the earth. And, what's the second part of that? And that they may teach their children, there's this aspect in running races to passing the baton of faith to the next generation. Turn to chapter 6, verse 6. Most of you are very intimately re- familiar with this passage, but we covered it. We're just going to read through it. We're not going to belabor the point, Lord willing. Chapter 6, verse 6. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Now, what were those words? That was the what Jesus describes as the greatest command of all. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now those words about loving the Lord first, putting the Lord first, having the focus of your life being a love response to the love that God had shown you throughout your days so that you could, as the psalmist would say, have this perspective of looking back at your life and saying, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Hopefully you're seeing God's goodness and his grace and his provision for your life. It aroused within you a love response to that love that he had first shown you. And those words which I command you today, they shall be in your heart. This isn't about how you look on the outside. God is concerned about how you look on the inside. Verse 7, the byproduct of that should be you shall teach them diligently to your children. Notice that that word diligently, that's a tough word for us to have to read tonight, isn't it? Because it doesn't set the bar real low, does it? It doesn't say teach them haphazardly. Teach them whenever you get around to it. Teach them wherever it fits into your otherwise busy schedule. Teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when? Everywhere and all the time. That's what we concluded the rest of that says. Talk about that Everywhere you are and all of the time. You think that seems too much. God says that's what you need to meditate on if you're going to have the proper perspective for living this life because the attack is going to be unrelenting. The attack is going to be fierce. The attack on your mind for your attitude, for your thinking, for your perspective, for your focus, for your vision, for your preoccupation, all of that, that attack is going to be absolutely relentless. Everywhere you go, everywhere you look, everything you listen to is going to have the propensity to distract you from the thing you ought to be focused on. And that's why the only way to offset that is to talk about these things everywhere you go and all of the time. Because Satan never stops with his talk. He never stops with his his information overload he never stops promoting something that is less than of lesser importance than the word of god and again we know that it's not all sin that he's promoting sometimes he's accomplishing his agenda to distract you by promoting things that are true in principle they're true and in fact they might even be good but they're less important to be focused on than the truth from god's word then we turn to deuteronomy chapter 11 you see you're sure that the bible is a book of repetition and I say to you yes I'm sure that the Bible is a book of repetition there's principles that need to be learned and they can only be learned through repetition it's like saying something to a child then they don't do it and then you you say why didn't you do that and you say when did you say that so then you can say well let's just go through it again okay child let's just go through it again then if you didn't get it let's go through it verse 18 Deuteronomy eleven eighteen, Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine where? In your heart and in your soul. They should be the fabric of who you are. And bind them as a sign on your hand. Your hands you're always looking at because you're always using your hands. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. It's right in front of your eyes. 19, you shall teach them to your children. Speaking of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, meaning all of the time. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, 21, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them like the days of the heavens upon the earth. 
Now, we're not going to turn there, but Psalm 145.4 says this. It says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Meaning there's a verbalization of what God has done in your life to those that are around you so that you can pass this baton of truth to the next generation. And there's a context for that as it relates to everyone having that responsibility of passing on that baton of truth. So if you're going through your life effectively proclaiming day in and day out, to God be the glory, great things he has done, what a wonderful Savior. You're saying, how great thou art. You're saying, great is thy faithfulness. You're saying, thank you, Lord. And if you're passing along that legacy, then you're passing a baton of truth to those that God has put in your life. But when you think about passing the baton, it also includes or there's this focus or subset within this idea of passing that baton to the next generation of leaders. And that's the specific focus that we're at here today. You're like you gave half a message to get to our focus for today and the answer is I guess so. But passing the baton, it also includes this idea of entrusting leadership and responsibility to the next generation of men, of women, men and women of faith as well. Now, Paul, he talks about that in Second Timothy. Remember, he's coming to the end of his life, and so he wants to talk about the things that are most important to him. One of his concerns is that the truth, the baton of truth, could be passed on to other faithful men who could carry that baton forward, not through their own strength, but through the strength of God working in them as he had been working in the Apostle Paul's life. And so Second Timothy chapter 1 For the sake of time, I'll just read it to you. But 13 and 14, it says this. Paul's writing to his surrogate son, Timothy, one who he's treated like a son in the faith. And he says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. So could he hold fast to something that hadn't been proclaimed to him? No. But he says, Hold fast to what you have heard in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. His position in Christ Jesus is the only thing that's going to make this possible. That good thing which was, catch this word, committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So he's really clear here. This isn't going to come from, from your strength. But you've been entrusted with, committed to be, have been, had something committed to you is to be entrusted with it. You've been entrusted with sound words. You've been entrusted with a message that needs to continue after I'm gone. He says in chapter 2 to Timothy of the same book, 2 Timothy, you therefore, my son, now what's his instruction going to be? Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. See, his position in Christ is on full display. The grace of God is on full display. And the things that you have heard from me, again, another focus on, he had to have heard them. Among many witnesses, he says this, commit these to, now not just yourself, the next generation of baton carriers. carriers, The next generation. Commit, so entrust those truths, not just to yourself, which was the context of chapter one, but now commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you're talking about now a whole generation of the next generation being entrusted with the baton of truth so that it would not die off, that the flame wouldn't go out, that the flame would keep going. So that's the prime thing I want to focus on in chapter 31 tonight as we look at this section or a start of a new section here in Deuteronomy that's generally known as the last words of Moses. So we're wrapping up this book. We have these instructions, then we're going to have the song of Moses, the song of Moses in chapter 32, and there's a little bit a little bit more, it goes through chapter 32, 33, there's a blessing of Moses. And 34, he's going to get his one, kind of one view of the land that he's not going to get to go into. So we're coming down the home stretch here. Let's turn to chapter 31, if you're not there right now. The first section here is, of course, about passing the baton. So the leadership baton is going to be passed to Joshua in these first eight verses. I want to read them and then we'll pull out some things. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you though. He will destroy these nations from before you and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you. There's an out, uh, a reference to this changing in leadership responsibility to Joshua, just as the Lord has said. 
And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and their land, which when he destroyed them. So he gives a, he reflects back to an example of God already showing his greatness recently on the other side of the Jordan, the non-promised land side of the Jordan. So the Lord will give them over to you that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Now, verse 6, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them for the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him, in the sight of all Israel, be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. Verse 8, and the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. bunch of things that I want to bring out relatively quickly uh, in the hopes that we'll get through the rest of these other two sections. But Moses, as this leadership baton is passed to Joshua, first he starts by communicating that his life is near its end. And I like the poetic way that he describes the limited time he has in front of him. He says, I can no longer go out and come in. And I think about how as you age, it's more and more difficult to go out and come back in. Oftentimes, the last days end with your homebound or your bed, your bedbound even. That's a sad but accurate and, and difficult or poetic way, I guess, of saying my life is close to an end and I'm, I'm dwindling down to the point where I'm not even able to get around like I once did. Now, it's in, important here, and I think the, the thrust of this as you get into 3 through 6 and then 7 and 8, the, the focus of this is so, tra- it's so right in your face. It's this important reminder of who the ultimate leader is. So there's going to be this passing of, of a baton. There's passings of batons in, in many different facets of, I would say, church responsibilities or church leadership even. There was a passing of a, you know, this was a symbolic passing of a baton of this Bible that Pastor Weefel bought for me that I've been using for the last three years. There was this sense of, uh, on to the next guy and, and keep, keep proclaiming God's truth, keep doing it through God's strength, all the things that he said to me on that day. Now the reality is you have this reminder here that it's ultimately the Lord that's the leader and he's working through human instruments and human vessels to accomplish his purposes if they're willing. And so you have, there's this contrast set up here where Moses is saying, I can't go with you. Uh, you've been following me, and many of them, what he's really saying is, you haven't really been following the Lord. You've been following me, and he knows that. He's saying, but I can't go with you, but what? What's the contrast? But the Lord will be with you. And it's not just the Lord will be with you. It's the Lord will go before you. You see that? The Lord will go before you. I think you see that in verse... Uh, three. The Lord your God himself, he crosses over before you, I think that's powerful. Not just with you, but before you. Think of times in your life where you were scared or you were facing a scary path or, or some type of a scary obstacle. Isn't there great comfort in watching someone else go first? Don't you often even say, no, no, y- y- you go first. And in, in our family that happens at times. So, somebody else go first. Because if you see somebody else that you trust do it or you see that it's not possible because somebody else has done it who is perhaps stronger than you or older than you or bigger than you, it gives you confidence then to follow their lead. The whole picture there is if having someone else goes first, it sometimes emboldens you then to follow their lead. Now, Jesus himself, he said that in John eight twelve. Jesus spoke to them again saying what? He said, I am the light of the world. Now, you 7th and 8th graders were just studying the I am statements of John during VBS. I am the light of the world. But what does he say beyond that? He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. This idea that you have this great peace and comfort that comes from knowing that you don't have to go first. He will go before you. You just have to be willing to trust him enough to follow him. First Peter 2.21 says this, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. You're not going first. 
You're following after him. He was the example for us. That's why you can have the instruction to let that mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. That was demonstrated through a, a perspective of humility and sacrifice and service for others. Let that be your example. Then Paul says, imitate me as I what? Imitate Christ as an example. There's this idea of passing that baton through example to others knowing though or remembering that God is the one who is the ultimate leader. God's the one who is going in front of all of that. Now the other thing to take away from this is you cannot serve the Lord without being willing to follow him. So he says, I'll go before you. I'll be your example. But you have to be willing to follow me if you're going to serve me. You can't serve me while at the same time being unwilling to trust me enough to follow my lead. There's absolutely no value to him going before you if you're unwilling to follow his lead. And John records that sentiment in John chapter 12, verse 26 too. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. And as you think about that, you're never going to consistently follow someone you don't know or trust. The key to this is if God is going to be the one who goes before you and Moses is saying this to the people, I'm not going to be there, but one much stronger than me is going to go before you. Now what is he really saying to them? Well, if you follow him, everything's going to be okay. But written into that is this idea that you'll only follow him if you've learned to have a walk of faith, if you've learned to trust him. Think about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. What's the order that you have there? It starts with trust. Trust in the Lord. And then it ends with direction. He will direct your path. The direction comes from first learning to trust him. And as you trust him, you see that he knows best, that he can be depended upon, and that he is ultimately going to point you in the right direction. Now, what are some of the other promises that Moses is making here? They're just absolutely amazing. The first one was, the Lord's not going to just be with you. He's going to go before you. But what, how about verse 3? He will destroy. God is the one who fights your battles. He will destroy. This isn't about you. This is about trusting him. That's what the whole Bible is about. Seeing that I can do nothing to fix my problem with sin, to have a life of faith apart from God providing for me and directing in my life, apart from the new birth, regeneration having taken place, apart from being born again, that could never happen. So I realized that. Lord, I need you. I, I realized that. That's the point of the Bible. Then once I am his child, I am born into his family. I am regenerated. I'm born again. Lord, I need you for everything all of the time, in every day, I can do nothing without you. That's the, the primary lesson that is to be told in this narrative or this story from front cover to back cover of this book. So it's God who fights your battles. He will destroy, it says in verse 3. He will do to them, in verse 4. The Lord will give them over to you, in verse 5. All the emphasis is on what God is going to do for you, not what you need to do for God. Now, what should be the result of this realization? So God's going to go before you. God's going to fight your battles. You need to learn to trust him. What should the result be? Look at verse 6a. The result should be, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. You see, friends, that conclusion or outcome is absolutely impossible if you haven't first learned to trust the Lord, to see that he's the one who's going before you and he's the one who's fighting your battles, that he's worthy of your trust, he's worthy of your faith, he wants you to put your rest and dependence completely in him. Once you see that, now you can say what? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. It's because you see that I'm not alone. It's God that's going to undertake in this difficult spot that I find myself in. Now, doesn't that sound very similar to what Joshua has told in Joshua 1.9? Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is what? With you wherever you go. The question is, are you applying that to your life? Moses is trying to make the people see that he's not going to be there, but they never needed him anyway. God was using him in their life. They should have had a respect for him because God asked them to have respect for 
the leadership that he put in their lives, that God was working through him, but it was ultimately God that was the whole focus, not him. And he said, and God's not going anywhere. I'm not coming with you. But God, who's been with you all along, remember all the way back to chapter 4, he's been carrying you like a father carries a son. He's going to still be with you. And so that's what we have there. And the question is always in our lives, am I appropriating that? In a practical way, am I applying that to my life? And then you have more promises that are made there, not just the promises about what God will do, how he's going to fight the battles, how he'll be with you. In the last part of verse 6, so 6b, I guess, there's this idea of just resting. Because you have this phrase, the Lord your God goes with you. What else does it say? He will not leave you. He will not, you can insert that, because it says leave you nor forsake you. He will not forsake you. I mean, how many promises can you pack into one little section here? He'll fight your battles. He'll go in front of you. He'll go with you. He'll not leave you. He won't forsake you. And then in verse 7, we have this transition from those amazing truths directed at all, all men and women of faith in the nation of Israel. Now we have this very visual and public transfer of leadership in verse 7. So in the sight of all Israel, there's this transition of leadership that takes place. So there's not a lot to say about that. But the Bible consistently outlines various leadership structures in the home, in government, in, in the church. The nation of Israel is a little bit unique, and it's a, it's a government, it's a nation, but it's also, it's also a collection of men and women of faith. So there's a sort of a, a churchy kind of a aspect to that. A, I don't know how else to say that, but there's some of those same aspects to it. It's all ordered, though, under God himself. So Moses is saying, yeah, there are human leaders. They're appointed by God. God selected Moses. God selected Joshua. Moses didn't pick Joshua. God did. And so then there's this idea that as God works in that individual, people can voluntarily choose or not choose to arrange themselves alongside or with or, or to, to honor and respect those leaders that God has appointed. So it's a critical reminder for anyone in leadership as you think about verse 8. God is going to say to, through Moses, he's going to say to Joshua what he just got done saying to the whole rest of the people. See, the leader of any, of any spiritual organization, whatever it is, whether it's the home or whether it's the church or, I mean, I guess ideally, a government, but that's a whole other ball of wax. But that person needs the same reminders everyone else needs. See, a flawed and imperfect human instrument God is desiring to work through is, in this instance, it's Joshua. So he says, you need the same reminders that everyone else needs. And so he says the same things in verse 8. He says what? He, God, is the one who goes before you. He, God, will be with you. He, God, will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Basically, the exact same things are stated directly to Joshua. And as you think about human leaders, you have to remember that they're human. But yet God has chosen or decided to try to work through those individuals for, ideally, the good of everybody involved. So you're not responding to human leaders. You're responding to God himself. You're responding in faith to him. And it's not because the human leaders always get it right. It's not because they're so easy to deal with. It's not because they're wonderful. It's not because they're a perfect example. It's not even because they deserve it. It's because God is the one who ultimately has come up with that structure. And so as you respond to him, you can respond to the people that he's put in your life. So it's never about them. As you're getting... As at times you feel let down or disappointed or discouraged in the human leaders, ultimately you can bring that to the Lord and say, Lord, ultimately it's you that I need to respond to. And as I respond to you, I see that you're perfect, even though you're working through imperfect instruments. And so that can give you perspective, even when things aren't going the way you would want them to go, or you're discouraged or disappointed. Now, verses 9 through 13, there's not a lot to say here. The word of God is to be promoted is the best way to say this. So every seven years, they're to read, most have concluded that they're to read, it says the law, but most have concluded that it's probably reading the book of Deuteronomy in its entirety. 
So as you think about that, you're blessed to have direct access to the Scripture wherever and whenever you want. But that hasn't always been the case throughout history. It was rare or unheard of for an individual to possess a copy of the Scriptures. So how did you learn the Scriptures? You learned from being taught by your parents. We've already covered that. Being taught by the priests and through the public reading of Scripture. So who was supposed to be present or to be involved in this reading that would take place every seven years? Well, it says all Israel was to be present for this. Not just some people, but all Israel. Verse 11, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So there's nobody who can't find some benefit in hearing the word of God taught. I guess that's a takeaway that you could have there. There's nobody who knows it so well that they couldn't hear it again or doesn't need a reminder. So you, you see that children are again mentioned as needing to hear and learn this. You see that verse 13 and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. You have that aspect again of torch passing. Now, are you convinced yourself that hearing the word of God, reading the word of God would be, of, would be invaluable to you? Well, if you're not convinced of it, you're certainly not passing that on to the next generation. So what's stopping you? What, what is making you think that that's not the case? Is it because everything that you've read has sunk in? Is it because you're allowing the Lord to make all the changes in your life that he wants to make? Is it because you're never getting distracted by the thinking of the world or the things of the world? It's because you have a full understanding of every facet of Scripture from beginning to end? Is that why you develop an attitude of I know it all? There's nothing more for me to learn. I don't, have to, I don't need to dedicate time to the reading of God's Word or learning God's Word. And I will say, just from a convicting perspective, if, if it's not real to you, it's certainly not going to re- be real to your children, though they are ultimately responsible for their own choices. It's going to be some kind of a miracle, and God is a miracle-working God, that somehow they can get beyond you enough to develop a love for the Word of God that you never had. That's very rare, but it, it can happen, and by God's grace, I hope it happens even in my own life that my children have a greater love for God's Word than even I do. But God does give you a great responsibility to be an example for them also. Now the last section here is the longest, but we're not going to spend that much time on it. You would take verses 14 through 29, you would summarize them as saying this, a tragic future is forewarned and foretold. A tragic future is forewarned and foretold. And so this section, effectively, it's an interesting way for this chapter to end, really, because it's been pretty upbeat, talking about passing the baton, talking about the importance of reading the Word of God. All these principles, all these promises have been focused on. Then you get to this back section of the chapter, and it's this warning or... It's more than a warning. It's a, it's a foretelling of what's going to happen. So then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua. Present yourself in the tabernacle of meetings that I may inaugurate him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. So just another culmination of that transfer of leadership. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers. Now what does it say next? And this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land where they go to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. It's not they might do that. It's not like... I see the signs that this is happening. This is God in his foreknowledge saying, this absolutely is going to happen. And he says, now this is going to be the consequence of it. Then my anger will be aroused against them. And then we have the context there of the Mosaic Covenant that there's physical conditional blessings that are withhold, withheld and consequences associated with forsaking God in the context, again, very limited context of the Mosaic Covenant where God has associated their physical well-being in addition to the more, what I have said consistently, is the more important focus God always has on their spiritual well-being, but he's associated their physical well-being and prosperity as a nation with their willingness to be a nation of faith instead of a nation that is 
in apostasy. And so he says they're going to end up in apostasy and there's going to be all of these negative consequences that are associated with it. So you think about this. I think it's important to remember that God's foreknowledge doesn't force or determine outcomes. Now, how can you square that? Theologians forever have been trying to sort through how God could know something in advance or know something would happen without in, in some way then determining the outcome and violating free will. I would say that that concept or, or answering that question is to some extent beyond our finite understanding. All I would say is that it's certainly possible for an infinite God that is unconstrained by time to figure out a way to make that work. He's an infinite God and he's unconstrained by time and if he says that he doesn't violate free choice and free will while at the same time knowing in advance all things and being omniscient, I can have to take him at his word. I'm a finite-minded person. How unsearchable are your judgments and your ways past finding out? My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. So how that works, I don't know. can't answer that. I can tell you that it'll make your mind numb to even read about the possibilities that people have come up with. And so if that's an adventure that you want to undertake, that's up to you. But I'm just telling you that we have an infinite God. To be infinite means there's no boundaries to what he can do. He says that without violating free will, man's choices, allowing men's choices, I can still know what they'll choose without impeding or interfering with their ability to make those choices. That's what God says. So you'll just have to take him at his word, just like this guy that was playing basketball last night was wearing a shirt. It said, God created the world, and I believe him. That's all it said on his shirt. There doesn't have to be more than that sometimes. But in any event, just remember that as you're thinking about this because that naturally comes out of a section like this. Well, God's setting them up for failure because he's saying something's going to happen and now it's naturally going to have to happen. They really didn't choose this. God chose this for them. And that's how some people approach some of these passages, but that's not how I would take it. So even though Moses had repeatedly warned them about turning from God, this infinite God knew that they would. And you see that in verse 16. Now you look at Moses himself, even a finite, so God was infinite, so he knew that in his omniscience. But even a finite Moses strongly anticipated this outcome. Look at verse 27. You wouldn't have to be a rocket scientist to predict this outcome. Moses had just lived with these, this nation of people. He'd seen their rebellion over and over again. He'd seen the rebellion in his own heart. He's seen how easy it would be to turn from the Lord and to lean on your own understanding. That's why he wasn't going into the promised land himself. So it wasn't any great stretch for Moses to even say this in verse 7. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? He's saying it doesn't take a lot to predict how this is going to go. He had seen this cycle happen over and over again during his time in leadership. And I tell you, if you knew enough about my life, it wouldn't take any, it wouldn't take any great intuition for you to predict that there'd be, there's going to be more failures in my life. All you'd have to look at is a track record in the past of not having gotten it right all the time. I can guarantee this as I look out at you. I don't have to be a rocket scientist or some sort of a medium that has special insight to the future. That's a bad joke. Uh, to predict that each one of you is going to have some hang-up in the future where you won't trust God the way that you need to. So that's not really even much of an assumption here. Moses is making a little bit worse assumption than that, though. He's saying that I don't have any reason believing that you'll turn from the Lord altogether, let alone just predicting that there'd be times of failure in your life and my life. That doesn't take much to predict that. That's guaranteed. Why? Because you're still cursed with a sin nature. And though victory is available, there's no person who isn't glorified who appropriates by faith the victory that's available all of the time. And that's why Paul says, I don't linger on those failures. I acknowledge them, but then I press forward and I don't look back anymore. Knowing that I am imperfect, but yet knowing that I have a new day in front of me. Knowing that his mercy is renewed every morning. Knowing that his faithfulness never changes. But Paul doesn't even have a perspective that he's arrived or that there's this sinless perfection that can be attained realistically, though theoretically it is possible through the victory that was won by Christ on the cross. So let's wrap this up. 
So there's going to be physical and spiritual consequences associated with breaking this conditional covenant. That's verses 17 and 18. But God, he never, he never promotes fatalism. God doesn't promote fatalism. What does he say in verses 19 and 20? Now, in verse 16, he's already said they're going to fail. But verses 19 and 20, he says, teach them and warn them anyway. Why? Because God still allows man to choose, even if he knows that ultimately they won't choose him. When God says that there are many that have rejected him or will reject him, when God says men love darkness rather than light, he's speaking a truth, but he's not condemning anyone to that choice. That person still has free will to make that choice for themselves. Now, he says, warn them in a song that can be learned and remembered. That's what he tells them. How how are you going to warn them? He says, warn them in a song that can be learned and remembered. And that'll take up a huge section here to follow the very long chapter, the Song of Moses coming up in chapter 32. So there's some value to learning songs, and it's spoken of right there. It helps you to learn and remember things that are in front of you. Now, the song is going to become a witness against them. Effectively, it's going to have this, this impact of saying, you were warned. You learned the song, you sang it over and over again. It was a warning to you all of the time. You can't now look back in the future and say, I never knew this might happen. I was never warned against this outcome. So that's what verses 21 through 23 talk about. And then 24 through 29, as we finish the chapter, it says, this book is intended to be a present warning and a future witness. So presently, it's a warning. In the future, it's going to be a witness against you. It's going to be exhibit A to say, you can't say you didn't know. You can't say you weren't warned. Look at exhibit A. Here's this song. Here's this whole book that's been given to you as a book of remembrance to warn you about the danger of turning away from your God. So are you running the race God has in front of you? Are you running it by his grace, through his strength? Are you fixing your eyes on him? Are you acknowledging when you're not doing that? Are you allowing him to change you? Then if that's true, what kind of baton are you passing on to the next generation? You're passing some kind of a baton one way or the other. What kind of a legacy or baton are you passing on? Is it a baton of truth? Do you see the value as we get to the middle section of hearing and learning the word of God? Do you see that? Then you get to this last section here. It's a sad ending, but it's reflective of every decision, eternal or temporal, that forsakes God. If you forsake God on an eternal basis where you say, I don't need God to deal with my sinfulness, You're going to spend all of eternity in the place where he is not. You know, that's what makes hell, hell. It's not because of any intrinsic quality about hell. It's because it's the place where God isn't. That's what makes heaven, heaven too. It's the place where God is. But eternally, that's the outcome of forsaking God. Temporally, what do you think the outcome is of forsaking God? Death in time. A life that's not abundant in time. Missing out on opportunities that God has for you in time. Not enjoying those eternal qualities and characteristics of God's life being manifest in you in time like 1 John has been about. Missing out on a relational living life and fellowship with God. Missing out on that intimacy of relationship. That's tragic. But when you forsake God, either eternally or temporally, either way, it's that same outcome. And it's predictable, but it's also avoidable, at least in some measure. It may not be avoidable, as I said meaning you'll never make a mistake, you'll never be distracted, you'll never have a moment of human weakness. But you don't have to linger there. You don't have to have it characterize your whole life. You don't have to fall into abject apostasy where you've turned from the Lord completely. You don't have to forsake him on an ongoing basis just because you've forsaken him in some moment. You can acknowledge that and move forward. You can re-enter into that intimate fellowship by stepping back, turning back to him, however you want to put it. And he's eager and waiting for that to happen. This didn't have to become a way of life or characteristic of the nation as a whole. Victory was available, but it was conditioned on them putting God front and center. And if you came back to Deuteronomy 6.5, it said what to them? The greatest commandment, the key to all of it was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Had they done that, they would have gotten to enjoy that fellowship with God in time 
they would have gotten to enjoy the blessings of the conditional Mosaic covenant, and they would have had lives that would have had purpose and meaning. But sadly, the way the story ends up ending for the nation of Israel is they turn to apostasy. They turn away from God, and the rest of the, uh, a good chunk of the rest of the Old Testament just bears out this story that's being foretold and forewarned right here. But may that not be true of our lives. May we learn something from, their, from this example so that we wouldn't have to go that way in our lives. And may we allow God to get a hold of our thinking so that this isn't true of us or it doesn't stay true of us, that we can turn back to him in faith and we can have that relational response to him and say, Lord, I want you to go, I, I want you to go in front of me. I want to trust that you won't forsake me, that you'll do everything that I need, that you'll be the one who fights my battles. I want to let, I want to have a spirit of dependence on you so that can be true in my life. Let's pray. Dear me, Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for your word. Pray that it would have some impact on our thinking. In Jesus' name, amen.